Welcome back to another episode of Entrepreneurs of Edmonton. I'm your co-host, Matthew Donnelly, here with you as well as Chad Bamman. Chad, hey, good to be back after a couple of weeks off and a, a big golf trip. Recently, how did you enjoy the trip down east? Well, the trip east is amazing. If you're into golf, you need to go east. Uh, there are some amazing courses there to uh, appeal to the visual eye. And uh, even if your game isn't great, it's just an experience. Yeah, so shout out to uh, Cabot Cliffs for, for hosting us. That was an amazing experience. Talk about amazing experience today. We are chatting with Ken Braggett, who recently was voted top 40 under 40, CEO of True North Modifications, gone through uh, a rebrand and a sale to Alexander Valvin Supply. And uh, this was a lot of fun talking to Ken. And so let's let's talk about a couple of takeaways that you had. What was one of the big things that just stood out to you? You know, what really stood out to me was his passion for his people. I mean, we hear a lot of that. Yeah, it's all about the people, but I sensed for him, it really is about his people and knowing them. Like he said, you know, when he was talking about, yeah, I don't just want to know your sin number. I want to know what your favorite place for dinner is and what your kids' birthdays are. And he really wants to know his people like that. So to create that loyalty. So when he asked them to take a risk with him, they trust him. That stood out to me. Yeah. So anybody listening that is thinking about trying to create or improve their culture, this is the episode to really pay attention to because Ken goes into detail about how he does that. What else you got? Well, you know, Ken uh, talks about his ADHD and, you know, I think a lot of times people get labeled and he shared a little bit of his history in school and, you know, again, wasn't great for him. Um, it was actually a very difficult experience, but he, you know, he has a, you know, he could either taken that and gone, woe is me. Or he went, you know what? It is what I am. I've always been told I'm different, but I'm going to be different in a good way. And so he chose to own the label and become, that's part of his superpower. It's part of why he is successful, mm-hmm. not why he isn't. And that to me is a very interesting way of viewing one's you know, own mental health and just yeah. kind of how what you, what, you're, what you bring to the table in terms of your mindset. It's it's was really astounding. I thought it was cool that you know Ken is making a difference and he can contribute it back to one teacher in grade five. So all you teachers out there, if you're listening, you have a real opportunity to impact somebody's life. And if that didn't happen, happen, Ken may not be on the road that he's on today. So lastly, what do you got? Ken is Métis and uh, he has a real passion for bringing change and growth and development to the indigenous community. And he said, you know, when he was a police officer, 75% of the people he worked with were homeless and indigenous. And he says, why is that happening? Right. So people only look at the surface. They don't look at the root cause. And I really got the sense Ken is looking to create, you know, jobs and, and, and just things on the reserve that can provide meaning for people who live there. And he's, that's part of why his company, you know, he went through the transition and, and now it's owned by the Alexander Band. And he lives what he says. And that to me is pretty amazing. All right, man. Let's get into it. Welcome to the Entrepreneurs of Edmonton podcast. Tune in to other entrepreneurs who have successfully navigated the Edmonton business landscape through their stories of adversity, triumphs, and strategic relationships. And now, your co-host, Chad Benman and Matthew Donnelly. Well, Ken, hey, it's uh, exciting to have you on the show today. We really appreciate you taking the time to, to spend some some time with us today and share some insight. You know, we're going to be talking business, but as part of it, we also like to get to know you a little bit, just kind of ask you some just casual question out of the blue. I don't know if you've ever watched any Disney, but if you, if you had a favorite character uh, in that genre, uh, who would it be? You know what? I think uh, I was growing up in the height of uh, 
like the Aladdin phase. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know what? Like in uh, Aladdin, this, uh, you know, down and out, uh, you know, down on his luck kind of guy. And, yeah. you know, a couple changes, and now all of a sudden he's got this beautiful princess. And, you know, it, uh, yeah, it was kind of, honestly, like it was Aladdin for me, right? I like that character. You know, I, yeah, I yeah. think I like the, the genie. Movie. I like the genie. Oh, the whole movie was great. <laughs> yeah. I liked, I liked yeah. Robin Williams. He's one of my favorite oh, guys. He was my absolute favorite. And, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, it was a, it was a shame what what happened, but yeah, he was he was unreal. Everything he did and touched, yeah, yeah, went a little overboard on some things, but uh, his take on golf is. Uh, uh, we talk about that all the time. <laughs> it's it is classic. Uh, Why eighteen holes? If you haven't listened to that oh, uh, yeah. bit, uh, you get yeah. them to do it once. No, eighteen <laughs> effing times. Yeah. Oh yeah, hundred uh, percent. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know how. I don't know why nobody ever told him. Hey, by the way, maybe you should trim that arm hair down. <laughs> he had the most oh. arm hair I've ever seen of any yes. individual ever. Yes, oh, that that is true. Well, there is in one of his standups when he he did a he did very little blue comedy, but he did do some of that, and he'd used his arm hair as a prop. Really? For some blue <laughs> humor. It's very funny. Yep. Uh, YouTube them. Um, fantastic. And interesting stories. So for those that don't know, before I got into sales, I moved to San Francisco to do stand-up comedy. What you do in San Francisco is it's not like, you know, here in Edmonton where you go to Yuck Yucks and do open mic nights. It's really hard to get an open mic night in San Francisco. So what you do is you rent out your own hall and you try to get as many people to come as possible. And hopefully somebody knows somebody knows somebody that brings a big wig there. So I was out watching a comedy show. It had 15 seats in the theater. That's it. So really small. And some guy's on stage doing his act and in walks Robin Williams. Like if you blinked, you missed the hole in the wall. There's no sign. It's like open up a door and it's a room and that's where the comedy was. And Robin Williams just walked up to the stage. The guy on stage looked at him and went like, oh, it's you and just walked off. And Robin Williams gets up, pulls out a piece of paper and throws out like 10 to 15 brand new jokes you could tell he just wrote. And all he would do is he'd say the joke and he'd watch you and be like, did anybody think that's funny? Who did? Was it what, you know, what was special about you that would think that that was funny? And you could see him go through and cross off. And what was interesting was they were all terrible. They were all terrible jokes. And yeah. the, the whole process was he needed to go before it made it to an HBO special. It was trialed in front of hundreds of people with different backgrounds and ages to see what actually resonated. And I thought, I would never have thought Robin Williams or Jerry Seinfeld or one of those people would go and do it and look terrible, but that's what they did on a regular basis. Well, and imagine being able to try something out and fail miserably at it and everybody hates it, but you don't lose money. You don't lose, well, maybe not friends, but, and all <laughs> yeah. you lose is just, oh, that wasn't that funny, but you're a super funny guy. We know that, but yeah. that wasn't good. Well, that's, I think that's what it takes to earn your craft is the ability to be humble enough that he didn't care that they were terrible. Yeah. But what was interesting was it was terrible for that group. Because he could have gone two doors down to another comedy group with a completely different background and it would have killed. Oh, yeah. And that's what you're learning about, you know, your, your market differentiator. Well, who are you going after? Well, if you're not selling something, maybe it's because you're talking to the wrong people. I think there were some really world applications when I saw that and thought, man, Robin's really a unique character. So let me get this straight. You couldn't sell jokes. <laughs> but now you're selling how to sell. You know what? I had the wrong audience. <laughs> I had the wrong audience 100% of the time. That's what it came down to. Actually, you know, truth be told, I ran out of money. And then I had to, because San Francisco, I lived there in the dot-com boom. Oh, okay. And so I was renting a, a gentleman's closet. So I slept on the floor underneath his clothes. So uh, yeah, the running joke is I had to, 
go to San Francisco to come out of the closet. Uh, <laughs> but at the end of the day, uh, yeah, at the end of the day, he would just grab his clothes in the morning and I'd be sleeping on the floor. And that was still $250 US a month. So, that anyways. sounds like a, a good little short story. Yeah. You should expound on one <laughs> yeah. day. Yeah, one day, one day. So uh, so it's great to have you here, Ken. So let's kind of dive into your background, how you kind of got into business. And so was was business something that was always on your mind as a kid growing up or were you interested in sports and like other things, getting in trouble? Like what were the things on your mind kind of growing up and was business one of them? Yeah, I've got a crazy kind of background on how I even grew up. Um, you know, it's it's very complicated and it's hard for me to meet somebody and them to follow. Uh, how many dads do you have? How many times were you in a divorce when you were adopted? Like, so yeah, I was uh, my 10th birthday. My father... Braggett father, Dennis Braggett, and my mom, and they were divorced at the time, sat me down on my 10th birthday, and I'll never forget where it was and, and the circumstances around it, but yeah, they said, hey, by the way, um, your name is not Ken Braggett, and that is not your real father. Your your real name is Kenneth Lewis Callahoo, and your dad is somebody that you've never met. He's, uh, in my mom's words, uh, he was a drunk Indian that wanted nothing to do with you, and you've never met him, and that's your, this is your father, and, and Wow. I'm 10 years old. How do I, how do I process? How do you, how do you process? Wow. I'm literally like, okay, cool. Where's more cake and more toys? Like, <laughs> yeah. you know? Yeah. And so I, I, I didn't really pay much attention to it. Um, you know, my mom had then met a, uh, another man named Greg, brilliant engineer. He's involved in the oil patch. He was chief engineer at a very big company here in town and had then started his own little valve business. So, um, you know, I had uh, this new stepdad, Greg, and I had my, my, my adopted dad, Dennis, and I was very, very involved in hockey. Like hockey, I thought I was going to be a hockey player. Um, I, was, I was fairly good, and, um, but, you know, lacked the attention. Like I also suffer from ADHD. Mm-hmm. So I was, you know, hand, hand, hand you know, fist-fed fist Ritalin as a kid. Wow. Um, caused me a lot of problems in school to where actually like, you know, in, in one of the grades in, in elementary, I think it was grade three or four, they actually built me my own little segregated cardboard room, like the, the divider room in the back <laughs> of the room. Yeah. Wow. And, um, you know, I couldn't see the class. I could, I could only hear, you know, and um, so it was, it was, school was very tough on me. And until a, a teacher in grade five kind of figured me out. He was a male teacher. Uh, I forget his last name, but, um, you know, he said, hey, like, you're disrupting what I'm trying to do here. And, you know, do you care about your, your classmates? Of course I do. I, I like my classmates because they laugh at my jokes and we have fun <laughs> together. He goes, okay, well, I'll cut you a deal. You sit here for the whole time and I'll let you goof around the last five minutes. You can do whatever you want, you know, keep it reasonable, but I'll let you do that. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I would sit there and I would be so, because I, I was looking so forward to the five minutes I could goof around. <laughs> And I would just sit there and I, I, would, I wouldn't because the one the, the odd time that I would goof around, he'd go, not today. And i go, oh, darn, because I was looking forward to that, yeah. right? And, um, and yeah, he really kind of got me. And it was, it was the only time really in, in my school life that, that a teacher kind of understood that I was different, but in a good way. If you yeah. learned how to use my energy, mm-hmm. I could be extremely, you know, talented at something if you just let me think outside the box. Right. Yeah. I, I, I've been, I've been called different my whole life, both good and bad. Right. <clears throat> you know, and, and my mom, you know, growing up, my mom was, my mom came from a very challenging home. Like she, she left home at 14, 15. She had her first kid at 17. She's got a crazy story. That's, 
probably going to be picked up for a Netflix special one day. It has to be. Mm -hmm. And she was very uh, abusive and aggressive and didn't know how to be a parent because she grew up very young. And um, so that caused that caused some issues for, for me and my siblings, of course, because, you know, you, you develop, a, you know, you're very tough on yourself and you, and you develop a low self-esteem and, and a worthlessness. And so hockey and sports was a really good outlet for me because I was so good at it. Mm-hmm. But it just, unfortunately, I never never stuck with it and took it seriously enough because then I discovered the, my attractiveness to girls. <laughs> and, you know, oh, they had, you, know you, yeah. you, you get a girlfriend <laughs> and you get an offer to go play, you know, semi-pro hockey somewhere or, you know, WHL and you go, well, I don't want to leave my girlfriend and I don't want to do this. And, yeah. you know, I didn't have my priorities obviously straight, but um, obviously I wouldn't change it for anything in the world right now. But so, but then, you know, being involved with my stepdad, brilliant engineer, he had a business I like, I spent more and more time around the business. You know, I, I would, I would sometimes they'd even get purposely suspended because it'd be like, you're going to go work for your dad for free today. I'm like, oh darn. Again. <laughs> and, and, I, and I loved it. I loved being around, you know, it was a different type of teamwork. It was a shop full of guys, you know, and they're all working together. And I really liked it. You know, I, I, when I was in grade 10, I actually wrote a, you know, a, what is it? Calm, a calm class you have to take. Yep. Yeah. And I, I wrote, I either want to run my dad, my stepdad's business, or I want to be a police officer. Those are the two things I always wanted to do. Mm-hmm, um, right. You know, I, I like that leadership role. I like kind of, you know, helping people and saving the day. I like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, when I got out of high school, I uh, took about, I don't know, one month at Nate. And it was actually, uh, was my stepdad paid for the whole thing because he's very, he believes in education. Um and we were at that Grey Cup. So what's a Grey Cup in November, I think? Yeah, yeah. So the Grey Cup was in Edmonton. And in November. Yeah, the Grey Cup was in Edmonton that, that uh, 2001, 2002, whenever it was. And uh, me and my dad goes, how's school going? I said, Dad, I hate it. Mm-hmm. Like, I literally hate it. Other than the, there's cute girls there, but they think, all think I'm a dummy because, you know, I don't like school. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he goes, oh, that's okay, son. You know what? You can, you can drop out. I go, really, Dad? He goes, yeah, I only paid for one semester. Not a big deal. I says, yeah, you know, I really think I'm a worker, Dad. I need to come work. Maybe like at a valve company. <laughs> <laughs> and he goes, yeah, yeah, it'd be great. You know, he's probably had a couple dozen beers under his belt by then. And, and uh, so we ended up, you know, partying the whole night, <clears throat> went to bed probably three and four in the morning, six thirty seven. my doors kicked open in my basement. <laughs> I'm living at home still. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I open up one eye and I'm like, what's going on here? And he throws the classifieds at me and he, and he goes, time to get a job. And he does this like, <laughs> You know, Chris Farley, like, with his arms, <laughs> and he leaves the room. And I'm like, is this a, am I dreaming? Like, I thought I had a cushy job at the valve company, the family valve company. And and uh, I quickly learned that nothing was going to be given to me, you know. Wow. And um, it was a really good lesson because I was forced to go out and get a job. And I, you know, I got tossed around the old patch, you know, doing some entry-level stuff. Could never really keep employment for more than three, four months. Mm-hmm. And um, Why do you think that is? I wasn't mature enough. I wasn't ready. I didn't, I didn't take it seriously. And, um, I literally, did, I just, I didn't have my priority straight. Mm-hmm. I was in my early twenties and I was very happy. Like I was even, yeah, 1920. I was very happy that I had to go through those lessons because it, it taught me a lot about the world and myself. Mm-hmm. And then finally I was able to land uh, an interview. I had to go through like two or three interview processes at my dad's company for like a $8 an hour job. Wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it was crazy. And um, so I finally got the job there and I worked with him for four or five years and I started to kind of learn the camaraderie of the, of the employees and the guys 
and I and I was every time I'd have the chance to lead the group, it would go really, really well. Before we go, keep going, Ken. So, what do you think that process did for the other employees? Like for you, you had to earn it, which I think I, I like hearing. But you know, your dad's also got a culture and relationships with those people, and all of a sudden, he just gives this to you. That could set one precedent. And you know, looking back, what do you think it did for everybody in the company that you had to go through the same thing that anybody else would have to go through? Well, you know, it, it allowed me to earn the respect on my own accord. Okay. You know, and, and yeah, that's a very touchy subject when you bring in your, your siblings, relatives, anyone into your own business, it can really cause disruption within the culture. Mm-hmm. And I knew what he was trying to do. Um, and I, and I didn't, I didn't understand it then, but now owning my own business, did, did obviously the, I see it now. Did that annoy you? Were you kind of like, come on? A hundred percent. I'm like, I'm interviewing in this like nice shirt and these pants and I had to go buy some shoes or at least get them cleaned for like an $8 an hour broom sweeping job. Yeah. Like I'm your son. What the, what gives? Yeah. Right. (laughs) Well, you know, I've been there. Like I worked with my dad too in a business and you know, same thing. And sometimes I got really mad at him for making me do stuff that I thought like, come on, like why? Yeah. So, and I'll never forget this story will stay with me for the rest of my life. It's probably about two, three months into working. And, you know, work starts at eight and I would, I would show up at seven fifty eight, sit down, shoot the shit, you know, mm-hmm. and then put the boots on eight Oh five, eight ten, And I'd, I'd start working. And my dad showed up. I would always beat him to work because, you know, he's him, I'm me. But mm-hmm. I remember the one day he kind of caught wind that I was, you know, eight ten, eight fifteen. I'd start working. So I'll never forget one day he was there when I showed up at eight, seven fifty eight. Mm-hmm. He said, get in the truck. I go, where are we going? Take me for breakfast? Yeah, that'd be <laughs> great, right? And we drove, we left, um, we drove down Shore Park Freeway all the way to the Canadian Tire in, in Shore Park and back. So it was about a, you know, seven, eight minute round trip road uh, ride. And the whole time he was like lo- losing his mind on me. About <laughs> uh, work starts at eight. You don't put your boots on at 7.50. Work, you need to be working like, and just screamed at me the whole time. And... I was like, okay, like I, I kind of got the seriousness of it because I could see the passion that he, he wasn't getting mad at me to be a, you know, mean. He was getting mad at me because he cared. Mm-hmm. And I kind of went, wow, like, like that, he's telling me this now because I know he cares about me and the way he's saying it to me, even though he's, he's being rough on me, but he's not, he's not attacking me. He's, he's trying to teach me mm-hmm. and I'll never, so I carried that with me for even to today because one of the models I use now is it's amazing what you can tell someone if they know you actually care about them. Mm-hmm. And that allows you to be completely honest with people, but you can't be honest with them if you don't, if they don't feel like you actually care about them mm. because then they'll just think, who's this guy? Like, like F that. Right. But if you actually care about them, you could walk up and be brutally honest and get the most out of them and implement, you know, that thought today. So, so, so that's interesting. So I think we're going to come back to culture because I think that's super important on what you've been able to build, Ken. But I just want to go back to what you're saying. It's amazing what you can say to them. And the key word here is if, if they know that you care. 100%. So that must take a lot of time and energy yep. to invest in people that they know. Because it's one thing for you to say it, but most people say, and it's different with their actions, right? Yep. So, okay. So we're going to come back to, because culture is something that I really want to dig in with you, because I know you spent a lot of time doing that. Okay. So you, you start in the, in the business. How long were you in this business working for your dad before you, you went down the police road? Because I know you got diverging yep. things yeah, that happen so, here. So um, 
I spent, I think, until 2006, 2007 with my dad. So it would have been five years. And I just outgrew my ideas and the way I wanted to be a part of a business and run a business outgrew what he was willing to, to do. And I respect that now. Like, you know, he was in his 50s and, and you know, he had a very, you know, small but profitable business for him. Mm-hmm. And that's great for him. Right. But for me and for the culture and the group and the camaraderie of everybody, I, I didn't feel there was a, we need to take that next level. I want people to make money and I want to see people succeed. And, and that mentality outgrew. So I went and pursued my other dream of being a police officer. And that, you know, I applied and I got right in because I had a sports background. And it seems like if you have a sports background, police will just say, here's the uniform, let's go. Um, which, you know, is good and bad sometimes. But so I joined the police and I spent 23 weeks in police training and then I hit the street and um, in December of probably, I think, 2008, I hit the street. I uh, spent three years there, learned an incredible amount about our society, about myself, about, you know, the goods and the bads and the evils and the uh, whatever else. But, uh, you know, prior to the police, I was, you know, I'd, I had a temper. I wasn't the best communicator. I wasn't the best leader. That 23 week and then those three years that I spent in the police completely changed me 100 percent wow i was able to then you know solve problems with a level head um not show emotion lead speak you know i mentioned it before like you know when it when i ended up leaving the police and getting into business again you know sometimes it's nervous for people to go in and do sales you guys deal with it all the time how do you get Mm -hmm. over that you know Mm -hmm. trying to talk to people well I used to have to go into households where people were beating each other up and there was knives and guns and, wow. and I had to sell peace. Yeah. Well, that's you know, a sale. Well, 100%. <laughs> yep. right? And so then when I went into business again, it was like, okay, well, that's easy. Yeah. You know? So you've seen the hard part. I mean, I don't know if we were recommending everybody go into the police force. Then. I, would. <laughs> <Not now. laughs> I used to say door to door sales because you want to get uh, hard uh, doors slammed in your face. 100%. But, uh, you know, like you said, it's what's the worst that can happen to you. Exactly. Now, in your situation, there could be some bad things that can physically is, yeah. happen to you yep. for sure. Uh, but you know, I know emotionally, I think as human beings, a lot of us, uh, I, I you know, we kind of imagine the worst, yep. and the worst often rarely happens, right? Yeah. And so that's so, an interesting comment. So you you commented that you weren't a good leader. So looking back on that, what would be some of the attributes you would contribute to being a bad leader? From, you know, before, you know, because you had the, you know, you've seen the transformation of bad to good. Give us some, some ideas where people listening might be able to get some self-awareness around, sheesh, I do that. I do that. Like, you know, one of the biggest things I, I look back at is that I used to be emotional. I used, I, I didn't ever know, I didn't even know when, like, you know, day two or day three in police, the term methodical was used. And I'm like, I like that band. Like, I didn't know what it was. Like, I don't, I didn't know. You know, and because yeah, we, you know, I, I would I would get mad and I would react instantly and I would say stupid stuff and, uh, and you know, mm-hmm. so the police really allowed me to kind of process. Okay, what's really going on here? What's the problem? Mm-hmm. How bad is it? And what do I need to do to fix it immediately? I didn't allow. I I I wouldn't allow stress to come in. I would be you know I'd get stressed before you'd freak out and pull out your hair. I used to have beautiful long hair and now it's this. <laughs> that actually happened. It fell out a week after I got my, married and uh, but. So it just, it, it allowed me, I feel like a lot of times, and I've dealt with people in business, I've been business partner with people who are very emotional. Yeah. And that allows them to be predictable. 
and to be manipulated. And if the scariest person in, in any room I go in is the guy that doesn't say a word and I can't read because that scares me because I can read people very well. Mm-hmm. When I can't read you and you don't show me anything, that's terrifying because I don't know what you're thinking. Right, right. So it allowed me to really just calm down and process. You were more of a fire ready aim guy. 100%. And then you somehow, and that was that's your nature. How do you, like, I mean, when we're wired a certain way, like emotional people tend to be, emotional, like they just are wired to, to go there. How do you, what, what do you do to make that transition? Because that's like, easy to say, I think hard to do. Mm-hmm. I think seeing real stressful situations allows you to go, well, that's not so bad. Oh, so because you saw the worst. Oh, yeah. I, I, like, I, I, was, I was like five PSI pounds of pressure on my index finger from killing a kid. Wow. that had an unloaded gun. Yeah. You know, like being put in those situations, like, you know, having to dig up a dead body in the woods on source information, having to really see, see stress in the world. We, we make believe all these scenarios in our, in our everyday life of, oh, I'm stressed out because yeah, of this. Yeah. yeah. I'm someone, stressed yeah. out because I'm three minutes late picking up the kids. Or I'm, right. That's not stress. So, so you, but you, so you've right. seen these really extreme scenarios. So, so a lot of people will never see that. So what would you say to that person who isn't going to be in that situation? How do we, how do we really get a real comparison of what is, I guess, worth having emotions about and what is just like, okay, this is, this is something we can deal with here. You know, I, I don't, I don't know if there's a, a way to actually get through until you experience it firsthand or you start doing research. Like if you were to actually see, you know, the, the poverty in some of these places or countries or even on our, some of our first nation reserves, yeah. it would give you a different perspective of like, wow, I actually have a really good life. Right. What should I really be spending my time being stressed out about? You know, like you have one, we literally guys, we have one, I know we say this, you have one life to live. We have one chance. This is the only time we're going to sit here and do this. Mm-hmm. Right, um, unless your viewership goes bananas and they want me back for another story, <laughs> then, then we'll, give, we'll give the people what they want. Right, but you know, y- you you have twenty, f- you have time. Like, you know, now that I've I've found success, I don't want to have the most money. I want to have value, and I want to have worth, and I want to have time. Mm-hmm. And that's what I really want. And because you only have time, like my my stepdad got diagnosed with cancer in twenty eighteen, and you know he's only he was only sixty three years old, and it was like wow, like that you know, it's time now. Mm-hmm. You can have all the money in the world, yeah, but you could die tomorrow. Yeah. What have you really done with it? Did you spend, you know, two hours that day stressed out, freaking out? So I, I don't know if, if there's a magic recipe to tell someone, don't be stressed out. Right. Until they actually see, like, I shouldn't be because look at right. what else is going, look what else I could be going through. Right. Right. So, so it sounds like it's all about perspective. So is it about, you know, like, you know, people journal about gratitude and things like that. Like, can they get to that same place you're talking about by by thinking about the positive, or do they do they you know actually have to see the negative to put it in perspective about you know kind of where they are and what's important? What would you say to that? A lot of it is perspective, you know. Like we always look at that half glass full versus mm-hmm. empty, whatever it is. Um, and a lot of that is the way that you were raised and the way that you were hardwired when right. you were young, right? And um, you know, maybe traumatic events will affect you in some way. Maybe it's a death that you need to kind of go, wow. Like with my dad's cancer, that really kind of, that hit me because here's a man that I thought was invincible. Mm-hmm. And he taught me everything I've known about what I'm doing now. If it wasn't for him, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now. Mm-hmm. And it was like, wow, like this, this man is, 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 you know, is, when's his time up? I don't know. So he has to then make every single minute that he has left worth it. 
Mm-hmm. So like, would it be valuable for my dad to spend one day being grumpy or stressed out? No, because that might be his last day. Yeah. Right. Like we don't know. We're all right now. We're all dying. Yeah. We're, are, like we're, we're waiting to, we're, we're all actively dying. Yeah. So how are you going to spend your time? So it, it is kind of perspective and it is kind of like learning that, wow, like, yeah. why are we grumpy? Why are we miserable? Why are we stressed? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that frees you from, you know, like you said, it frees you to, to act and do things versus being worried and just sitting there being frozen. Right? This week's episode is brought to you by Sandler Training, your sales management specialist. Sales management, very difficult position and very often has not been invested in properly. And I'm not talking people. I'm talking structure. The sales team may or may not have moved home-based, making management more difficult if the processes and structure have not been created already. Look to provide support to your sales management team by auditing these strategies. Do we have behavior plans put in place for remote reps? Do they know what they need to do every day and every week? Have we created a cadence for virtual ride-alongs? Is there a process for pre-call plans and debriefing sales calls when they're done? Have we set aside enough time for one-on-one to coach each individual sales rep on a weekly or monthly basis? Do we have accountability plans for someone who is not performing the behaviors that have been agreed to? If your team is underperforming, ask yourself, have we done enough to coach and prepare the team for the current business climate and the sales challenges that exist in our space? If you want to learn more about sales management best practices, reach out to Sandler Training at www.aon.sandler.com slash podcast. But, you know, as, as I listen to you talk about your life, I mean, A, your childhood didn't sound, you know, had some challenges. I mean, you had ADHD. Um, still you know, do. You, still, don't yeah, you don't get rid of it. Yeah, it's true. It's not like you, you <laughs> don't have it. Yeah. But, you know, I was thinking about that because yeah, I think, you know, perception on learning, dis- whatever you want to call it, learning disabilities, like I think of Branson who was dyslexic, right? And he ran Virgin. Oh, yeah. And he says, actually, that helped him because he had to be really creative because he couldn't read. But you think of how the school system is designed, you know, kids going through the school system get told or get the message or the feeling, I'm stupid, I'm dumb, I can't learn, therefore I can't be successful. You know, if you were to talk to those individuals who might be, you know, going, I I think I want to do something, I don't know how to do it, and I have this learning disability, you know, what was, how do you leverage ADHD? Because I think it can help you in many ways in business. 100%. When I got out of the police um, in 2011, I was going through some challenges in my personal life with my wife. And part of it was my lack of focus and my lack of structure and being organized. And I was just all over the place. When I'm, when I'm not on my, like, so I, I agreed to uh, begin medication again. It was tough for me because I'm, you know, this big, rough, tough Ken Braggett. You know, I can arm wrestle both of you right now and, and I'd probably win. <laughs> probably. Uh, but that, the, but so then, so then to say, hey, you need to take a pill to be, to be a better human. You go, like bullshit I don't need that I'm Ken Braggett but what I needed to get my head around the fact is that I'm I've been I've been blessed with a unique brain Mm -hmm. and a a way of thinking and if I were to harness that energy and that brain I could be really dangerous and really valuable to something right and that's how I then thought of it was okay yes it's it you could look at it as a curse and sometimes it is and it's a blessing so let's take that and so when I left the police, I started uh, with a company. I helped start a company in 2012. And every morning I'd get up and take 54 milligrams of my Concerta. And I felt like when that movie Limitless came out yes. with Brad Cooper, yeah. yep. literally watched that movie. I'm like, oh my God, that's what happens. Like, I'm not that crazy, but like, yeah. that's what happens is I'm able to just function and put 100% of my energy into this one thing. Yeah. And 
if I don't take my pill, I'm probably the funniest, most unorganized <laughs> human being ever. <laughs> I like I like when I'm not on my pill because some of my best material comes in those days. <laughs> Usually on a Wednesday when I forget to make pill. But, um, so that really, really helped me in getting getting into business because you know I needed that structure and I needed to be organized mm-hmm. to get my tasks done. I could work as hard as I wanted, and but if I didn't have the energy and the, to focus, what was I? I was spinning my wheel, right? right. Um, so 2011, you got got into business, and so what was the first business that you got into? So it was a it was a valve company uh, again um, called International Flow Control, and it was like me and three old guys. Uh, I've been family friends with one of the old guys, and um, he. How it all worked is I I just did a I was gonna just do kind of freelance valve work, and I did a sales call with them, and the, Bob said, "Well, hey, why don't you come join us, and you know maybe some." you know, equity we can give to you. And, and, um, so I said, yeah, like, why not? So we started and mm-hmm. I was really good at the valve thing, mm-hmm. but it was all the other mental stuff that I couldn't, didn't have when I was younger working for my dad that I finally learned from the police and through other hardships and, and things in my life, finally able to put all the mental ability together with my physical ability. And it was like talking movies. It was like, I was Will from Goodwill Hunting. <laughs> it just made sense. Right. Like I could look at a problem. I could look at a valve. I could look at this and I, I knew the solution. It just all made sense to me. Like I had been subconsciously learning all this stuff for my dad for 10, 15 years and mm-hmm. boom, 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 boom. And, 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 and it, it was awesome. That, that makes sense. You say that Ken, because when we did a tour at your place, I got that impression just the way you were talking about things and just, here was the problem. Here was the solution. I was walking around. And I'm like, wow, like these solutions make a lot of sense based on how you see things. Uh, this, this paints a, a really good picture for me about the process you went through to get there. Um, so, okay. So how long were you, were you in this business for? So 2011, you started with these three guys and, and what was the, you know, the culmination of, of exiting that and, and why? Yeah. So, um, you know, being partnered with those three old guys, there was a, a very clear defined, um, you know, succession plan for them. You know, they, they weren't going to be around forever. And so one of the guys um, recommended bringing in a, an employee that used to work for him. And as one of the Lincoln Hills, he, he would be the sales guy. I would be the operations guy. And so, you know, Bob brought in this sales guy and, um, you know, kind of right off the bat, I thought, okay, this is going to be a challenging relationship to build here. This guy's, you know, this guy didn't come, if you said it out loud, I didn't come into business to make friends, which mm. is completely opposite of me. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, I, I make friends and yeah, do I got to pay them to stick around? Yeah, that's okay, but we're friends and, right. and they deserve it. And I, you know, and um, so we, you know, it was challenging and, and, and I regret some of the things that I allowed happen, which, you know, I got, I got bullied a little bit and I allowed it to happen for the you know, betterment of the business. And there was some moves made that, um, I look back now and I go, geez, man, if I, I should have stood up for myself, mm-hmm. I should have stood up for the business. Um, and then eventually in, you know, two, 2016, 2017, the old guys had left and it was me and, and this other guy running the business. And, um, you know, when you, when you go into, you know, there's two things when you get married and you go into business, that's when you really see what the other person's all about. Mm. Right. And I really saw what the other person was all about. And it was completely contradictory to what I wanted to do and what I believed in. Um, I'm very big on culture. I'm very big on people. I'm very way on the way you treat people on, you know, you got your word and you can't break your word for nobody. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so in 2018, 
I caught wind of some other stuff that was going on on the sales side of the business, you know, which was a really good lesson for me. Like I kind of ignored that and I, okay, you've got this. Okay, good. I should be able to trust you. Okay, good. Yeah. Well, I learned that I couldn't trust and mm. that there was stuff going on that I didn't even know about. Right. And, um, that's you know, a big lesson for everybody listening. I, I have heard, I don't know how many horror stories of that exact thing, 100%. which is I trust you and the partner is the person that you end up getting screwed by. Well, we actually ended up getting sued and I didn't even know about it. Oh, wow. he was, he was, he was, he got sued or like we got sued. He funneled the lawsuit, the claim to the lawyer without even notifying any other shareholder. Wow. wow. And it was like, what? So, um, Wow. Later on, like towards the end of that relationship in that business, I had, you know, I had a distant relationship with directly with the sales. So I, I didn't know much. So, but I had a, a friend call me and say, Hey, we're cutting your company off. I'm like, well, what do you mean? Like this is a $10 million, this is a make a $10 million year client. Mm-hmm. What do you mean are cutting us off? Well, because so-and-so did all this stuff and this, that, and the other thing. And it was like, well, that's not good. <laughs> this is affecting me now. Right, right. Uh, so I, I ended up getting involved and I, um, I, you know, ended up firing the, my, firing my partner as an employee, Le- left the shareholder, left the shares alone. I fired as an employee and uh, just out of, like, I had to do a big move, a big splash to try to save the client. Mm. And so I, I did that. I ended up saving the client for about three weeks until I got notified that I was, I was being given a shotgun proposal, a shotgun. Offer. Oh yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah, my lawyer said, Hey, you got something in the mail here. And I open it up and it's, yeah, it's a shotgun offer. Mm-hmm. And, um, it was a long 29 days of debating. Okay. What am I going to do here? Am I going to take this business over that? There's a whole bunch of things on the other side of it that yeah. I don't know about lawsuit relationship. Like, will, yep. we, will we be able to rebuild the trust? Mm-hmm. And um, at the end of the day, I sat down with six of my guys that worked there. And I said, okay, here's where I'm at with this. We can either try to make a go at this or we can leave. I've got an idea for a business. You know, me being a, a Métis uh, member of Alberta mm-hmm. would give us the advantage of being an indigenous company. If we were to go off and do it on our own, mm-hmm. fresh start. I've got this idea for a name, True North. I've got this business model. And um, this, the six guys said, let's do it. Let's do it. Let's start from, let's start from zero again. It's our start. Let's leave this mess mm-hmm. and let's go start again. And we sat down March 23rd, 2018 at the Argyle Casino and literally wrote out a business plan on a, on a, <laughs> server's a uh, piece of paper and um, I agreed to the shotgun and, and there we went. So emotionally, did you have any, was there any like doubt? Like, did you have any moments of like, oh, okay, what, what am I doing here? Or were you like, no, this is right. We got the team. I got the people. I got the idea. We're, I'm, I'm just, I'm all in and we're good. As soon as they told me they were in, I knew we were going to be a force to be reckoned with because the guys that I had were by far the, you know, some of the greatest human beings I've, I've had the fortune of meeting. Mm-hmm. And I knew that the idea was solid. I, mm-hmm. I, 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 you know, like I say, the, you know, the curse and the blessing with ADHD is, is it allows me to think and think and think, and I never turn it off. And I'm in an industry where 
our industry is very eight to five. There's no loyalty within these companies because they're all big corporate American owned. Right. And people do their job and they leave. And they and, and if you offered them $1 more, they would go work somewhere else tomorrow. Right. Right. And so I thought, okay, like I've got this loyal group of six. Right. And they're willing to run through a wall for me. They're willing to leave this this business that they had stable employment. Sure. They're willing to take a total gamble and leave and do this thing with me. And I have this idea. And I knew, I knew from that that we were going to be successful. I didn't know that we would be this successful. You know, we budgeted $1.1 million in our first year. I said, okay, that's good. Based on some of these clients we have, mm-hmm. well, in nine, in nine months to finish out the year, we did 3.3 million in sales. Wow. And it just, it, it, it didn't stop because we were willing to outwork. Like I worked 60 some odd days in a row to start true North. Wow. And those guys all worked next to me. And, and part of, part of what I really wanted to prove to the group was that if you want to be here, you got to outwork me. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not asking you to because it's not your business, but I'm willing to share it with you, but try to keep up. And I set that example by working 60 some days in a row to just like, this is how, this, this is what it's going to take. And you know, our first day in business, I sat everybody down and I said, what the effort that it's going to take to build this business, I can't afford to pay you what you do here for the first little while, but I'll make it up to you because I guarantee you if we're willing to work hard, we will succeed and then I will be able to pay you. So there has to be something, you know, that you did in the past to create that kind of loyalty because that doesn't exist in a whole lot of places. Um, No, it was, you know, the relationship that I built with the guys at at IFC in the previous business, um, the way I fought for them, the way that like I I, could have stayed at IFC and I, I would have been fine, mm-hmm. but it put me in that dilemma that I did with my dad. I'll be fine, but you guys won't be. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I want you to be better than just fine. And, you know, I always fought for him. I always gave him everything I could. And, um, you know, so we built that brotherhood that we were just willing to do anything together. Wow. And I ended up owing guys like $20,000 in overtime for that first year. Wow. Because they believed that, okay, we know it's going to take hard work and we can't be thinking about the immediate right now. Mm-hmm. It's going to come to us. And mm-hmm. you know, there, there was a couple of people that didn't believe in it and they left. And I know they have to regret it now because you know, I just dished out another $73,000 in bonuses and I was so happy to do it mm-hmm. and I'll do it again and again and again because these, you know, our culture at our business is completely different. You know, we don't use the word, we don't, I don't use the term boss. You want to, you want to make me mad, call me your boss. <laughs> I'm not your boss. Right. I'm your equal. Mm-hmm. I just have a little bit more responsibility and, and a little bit more to lose. And if I lose it all, I'll come live with you and then we'll rebuild it again. <laughs> so, you know, there's no hierarchy. Like I, I don't even have an office yet. Yeah. It's been, we've been at that building for two and a half years. I don't even have an office. I sit in the bullpen with the group because I love it. That's where the action happens. And that's, you know, where, you know, I, I just, it's, it's so different what we do and what we believe in. Are you guys at the same place? Same place. The yeah. same place. Yeah. yeah. We just recently opened up, well, we'll talk about the merger with Alexander, but yeah, we just recently opened up a second location on the Alexander reserve. Cool. Yeah. So cool. no, it's. Cause when I was there last time, you guys were just finishing the upstairs yeah. where you guys had the big weight room and stuff. Yeah. Did you guys ultimately end up doing the, uh, chef kitchen idea? Yeah. yeah. So we built, um, so yeah. And, and, and um, I sacrificed my dividend that year to build a $45,000 gym. So yeah, we've got a almost 3000 square foot fitness facility with all the top of the line gear. Mm -hmm. Uh, Our, you know, our, our average age of employee is probably like 24, 25. 
Right. So all these guys love it, you know, and, and that gym's full. It's full in the morning. It's full at lunch. It's full in the evenings and weekends. And um, it's, I, I, I like it because I, I can go up there and I can work out and I show the guys I can still lift and, and you know, work. <laughs> yeah. Even though I'm sitting behind a desk all day. But um, no, and then we did the kitchen. The kitchen, we, we renovated like a, a, a restaurant. And my goal is to have um, one of our Alexander First Nation members who lives in Edmonton, you know, who's a cook, come in and, and cook. Mm-hmm. And the boys will pay half, we'll pay half. And they'll have, you know, fresh food in the morning and they'll have a fresh fruit or snack or smoothie and then we'll have lunch and then, and there it is. I just, yeah. you know, I've been told, like I said before, I've been told that, oh, you're different and both good and bad. And actually mm-hmm. I got a pretty funny story about being different and being bad, but okay, I'm going to be different, but I'm going to be different in a great way. Yeah. I'm going to be different than all these other people who are doing things the same way they've always done them. I'm going to be completely different. And that's what my ADHD has really allowed me to do is, is like to stay awake at night and just think of all this stuff. Right. Right. So your brain never, it never goes quiet. That's the curse of it. Yeah. So it's always something happening up always, there. Yeah. It, it, uh, my dad with the cancer in 2018, he, I was always an anti-cannabis guy. Yeah. And then I started doing my research and I thought, Hey, like this actually has some, some benefits. And my dad took it for his cancer and I, he's like unbelievable right now, but not like the over the counter stuff like the actual black market, high, heavy dosage concentrated stuff that the government doesn't want you to have because you're going to live. Mm-hmm. So he's been taking that. And his PSA dropped from 30 to 0.5. He looks great. He feels great. He's lived way longer than they told him he would. And so I started taking cannabis for sleep. And it, it allowed me to calm down and kind of allow the brain to kind of shut down a little bit and stop thinking about all the crazy stuff I want to think about. Because I... I could literally sleep one or two hours a night just based on fatigue because I just never shut it off. There's right. always got to be a better way. There's always got to be a different way I can do something. There's always got to be something else going on. What other business can I have? And, and it, yeah, like I, I would have went, and that was, that's the curse of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But the methodical, you said you learned something from the police, which is being methodical. So all these ideas that float around that you can do, how do you meld that with, I guess, you know, what you called being methodical and kind of, you know, how do you know what to trigger on? Like, what should you really do that's going to help your business or what should you go? That was an idea I had at 3 a.m. and probably shouldn't do anything with it. So I've got the best team. Like, I'm I'm nobody without my team. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, when people say, oh, great work, Ken, I'm like, no, it's it's my team. Um, I've got a couple people around me that are incredible implementers. So they're practical. I'm the visionary. Mm -hmm. And... As a CEO of a company, you cannot be a visionary and an implementer. It's, it's impossible. You mm-hmm. need to be either one or the other. And generally, you're always the visionary. So I'm the CEO. I'm the visionary. I have all the wild and crazy ideas. Mm-hmm. And then I've got, you know, incredible people around me, Tyrell, Sean, and Tony, that, okay, that makes sense. Oh, my God, that one doesn't make sense at all. Just shelf that one. Yeah. But then it allows me to at least get it out there, get the idea out there, and then have it, oh, you guys are right, because that's not practical, but holy cow, that's a great one. Right. And, and I have had some phenomenal ideas that, that have, you know, ideas are easy. It's the execution that's the hard part. Right. Yeah. And if you don't have, how, how many ideas have we heard about, but, oh, I didn't execute it, and then somebody else did it? Yep. Mm-hmm. Every day. I think everybody, everybody listening will have that, that one of those ideas that you go like, oh, I just didn't. Exactly didn't do it i i had an idea back in uh, 2007 about online 50 50 at sporting games i drew up the business plan i drew up the f- the the revenue model the stream <laughs> and 
Uh, that's okay. I even got a patent lawyer who's a buddy of mine from high school. So what, what the Oilers did so successfully, exactly. you thought about. and Like 10 years ago. <laughs> 100%. Yeah, it, was called, it was called my I-50 50 or my online 50. Yeah. Yeah. But like, so, yeah. you know, it's just ideas are easy. It's the execution. That's the hard part. And that's why you got to surround yourself with good people that go and will be honest with you and say, ah, oh, boss, or, you know, don't use the term boss. Like, <laughs> oh, that's not going to work. This might work because uh, a visionary could go broke. Yeah. Starting all these ideas everywhere. How many times have we seen, wow, I've got serial inventors mm-hmm. are their own worst enemies. Mm-hmm. Because they'll start a hundred different projects, yeah, and never finish them. Yep. But if they had somebody going, no, 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 that's not good. But hey, that little one that could work, and that's what I've been so blessed to actually understand. It was like a, it was an aha moment when I was sitting in a tech group getting a, a presentation in my, one of my tech groups, and they simply said, "You will you will go broke if you try to be the visionary and the implementer. You'll go broke. You can't have it." Hmm. So I was like. Jesus, like that describes me perfectly. How do you come up with this kind of self-awareness though? Like, you know, your self-awareness about who you are, what you are, what you're not. Um, I've met a lot of entrepreneurs who I call them the smartest people in the room. They always like to kind of, you know, tell you how good they are at everything. That's not you. Nope. Is that, have you always been that kind of self-awareness or is nope. that something you, nope. how did you, how did you get there? Um, I think my, I think honestly my desire to, succeed for my people is why i'm open to not being the be all like i'm not the smartest guy at our shop i might be the best salesman marketer presenter but i'm not the best at anything those guys do i can't go out in the shop and perform like they would anymore you know and that's why ceos always change their what's what's the most important thing well they all first day you know oh when i'm started it's hard work and then it's this and then it's oh it's i gotta you gotta be passionate well that's because everyone else is now working hard and they're the smarter ones than you are. And, you know, it's, it's, I, I think it's the fact that I really, I really, really, really want this to work for my people mm-hmm. that I needed to then be humble and be open-minded and just, if you're going to be stubborn and you're not going to be, know what you're good at and know what you're not good at, you're going to fail. Mm-hmm. You will. You have to surround yourself with, with people. I look at, I look at it like a, a hockey team roster. You're only going to have your Connor McDavid's and your Leon Dreisaitl's. Those are your those are your stars, and that's a fact of life. Every business has the stars. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that the third and fourth liners are any less valuable. Right. You can't have an entire roster full of stars. Oh, no, you can't. You, can't. you got to have the people. Oh, that you know that person does that. That person does this. Yeah. You know, like you take. So I'll take Tyrell for example. Tyrell, I met Tyrell's dad when I was in the Edmonton City Police, and then Tyrell, sixteen, came to work for me at IFC and he quit because the, the manager he had at the time was wasn't the right manager but Tyrell was too young to be a manager he needed to learn life lessons mm-hmm. and so Tyrell came back he was one of the ones that left IFC and came to me with the true north and he's now my right hand man like he's my operations manager at 26 years old this individual is the smartest individual you could ever meet you tell him a problem with something mechanical the kid will have it fixed in two seconds. Hmm. But could he be sitting here doing this? No. He can't, he, he, he's not that type. He's mm-hmm. not, he can't do a presentation. Yeah. You know, he, thank God he was rejected by the, the, the fire department because <laughs> in his interviews, they're like, you're not even saying two words here, son, and you're mumbling. Right. Yeah. Perfect. Because I'm the guy who can do all the stuff he can't, <laughs> and he's the guy yeah. to do all the stuff I can't anymore. Yeah. So it's just, it's finding that, that, that synergy and that mix and that trust with each other. Um, 
that has really been been good for us. So you've been building this business and creating this great culture. Now let's transition a little bit because I know one of the big things that's close near to your heart is making a difference in the you know indigenous community and things like that. So as you were growing True North, I know that you know you started as a as a Métis company. Uh, you've got indigenous people working there. Um, so how did this transition? So you know you've got this new merger. Maybe talk us through just you know, how this impacts your life, why this is so important to you and, and where, where is the business today that, that you've transitioned? Yeah. So, so yeah, when we started True North 2018, we were the only indigenous entrepreneur owned company that did what we did. You know, I look, I looked at the market and my market is dominated by some billion dollar companies, but they're not nimble and they can't react quick. So I looked at, okay, what can I do that they're not doing? So I, I started that side of it mm. and my, the reaction that I got from the big billion dollar companies wasn't what I needed it to be to be able to run my business, pay everyone, and then start to make a difference in some of our indigenous communities. Because I had then, you know, 2015, 2016, I met my entire Kalahoo family. And I started doing my own research as to what actually happened with our First Nations people with colonization and the treatment and the Indian Act. Like if you read the Indian Act, it's powerful and it's very disappointing. And then I found out what my family, what my family reserve went through. They were basically swindled out of their land and sent packing. So I started to kind of do some research and go, okay, like, wow, I have the ability and now the desire to help because this is my cause now. This is my cause. Um, I want to help make a difference. I'm, I'm a Métis entrepreneur. I'm fairly successful. I want to be the leader and the role model for a bunch of people. But the support I was getting in the business, in the industry wasn't, couldn't facilitate my dream. So we actually had to pivot and change our name and then offer a whole bunch of services and try to maybe compete with some of our, the billion dollar companies. And, um, and it worked, you know, we, like I said, we, we started with a $1.1 million dream. We went to 3.3, we went to 6.5. Then we went to 10, like it went crazy. We went from a 7,400 square foot shop to a, uh, 120,000 square foot shop. Wow. And so, you know, I, I'm a big believer in karma. I really am. And we just put out such good, good energy and good vibes. And we were doing awesome things in the community and, and nobody else is doing them. In our industry, nobody else is doing it. You know, in the energy industry, you've got all these big companies, Enbridge, Pamina, TC, mm-hmm. Crescent Point, that are focused on helping indigenous communities. Meanwhile, those big companies are spending billion dollars with all these other billion dollar companies and they're doing nothing. Mm-hmm. Right. It's kind of like, man, like we should be looking at this differently. Like how can we actually help that we're different again? Mm-hmm. And you know, that's what I, that's what we started to stand for. And it took a long time. Like we were rejected by the billion dollar companies, except for one of them, we were rejected. And then it was finally got the attention of the big companies to go, Hey, like these guys are actually different and standing up like we are. Mm-hmm. And that kind of blew it up for us. So, you know, we, we invested heavily in some other areas and yeah, there was a lot of, like, there was a lot of scary nights because, you know, I deal with a lot of the childhood stuff. I deal with some mental health issues. Like I'm a very, I'm very tough on myself and I'm a very, you know, inner, my inner critic is, is horrible. Mm-hmm. You know, my inner critic is horrible than the Rob Williams, you know, audience. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. you know, I, it's tough when you don't think you're ever good enough. So you always treat it, strive more and more and more and more. You're f- terrified of failing. Mm-hmm. So you maybe take some risks and gambles that maybe you shouldn't because you, you're terrified of failing. And so there was a lot of nights where I was like, geez, man, like we're going to like, like middle of the month, it was, it was clockwork middle of the month. 
I'd have two days right where I would literally like shut it down, cash in the AR, pay out the AP and, and we're done with this thing. We'll be done in two weeks. Mm-hmm. I had that for like two years. I still have not so much, but I still have those moments where like, oh man, we're going to be ruined. <laughs> Even though, you know, we're 20, 30 million, like it's, yeah. you're, you have those moments and, and I don't mind them because they always keep me hungry. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be like, I don't want to sit back and never not be hungry. Yes, how did you get the the partnership with the Alexander Band? Yeah. So through my research of, you know, my heritage, I was actually driving through First Nation Reserve up in northern Alberta. And these companies, when they conduct work in traditional territories, they are required to, you know, give back, help out, whether it's through employment or infrastructure or something. This community, well, it's Conklin. And um, I drove through there. And Conklin's, you know, it has its challenges and struggles in the community. And But one of the energy companies was working in the community and they thought, okay, we're going to give back by, you know, whether it was a request of leadership in Conklin, but, you know, the let's let's put a rec center in your, in your community. And so I drove by this rec center and it was maybe about 80% finished. There was no work going on at the time. And I'm like, what is the point of this? Like, what is the real point of this? Mm-hmm. You drive through the community there's some housing that, that like they need housing, like they need other things. Like they, like, what is this rec center going to do? It's going to generate one or two jobs, maybe. Mm-hmm. But meanwhile, it's going to cost $5 million. Right. So I, my wheel started spinning on how can I be different? <laughs> and like what we need to do is maybe give our First Nations communities infrastructure to build a problem, give them a business, give them an idea. You know, uh, Suncor spends $10 billion procuring material for their worldwide operations. Okay, well, you know, all these other companies are about the same. But meanwhile, you're buying stuff from the, around the globe. You're buying stuff. Or you're having stuff manufactured for you. So could we then take that $5 million commitment that you're obligated to put in a community but say, hey, community, we're going to give you $2.5 or $3 million of infrastructure, buy you some equipment, buy you some machines, and we buy 5 or $10 million a year of this widget or this good, and we want you to make it in your community. Mm-hmm. So then that community then goes, okay, well, wow, like now we got jobs. Right. Now we got, you know, whether it's five or 10 jobs, great. And then we can spin off now that maybe that's a laundromat. Now it's a driving range. Like what other jobs can we spin off of if you're generating infrastructure in the community? Right. So that's really where this all started. I had a four hour drive home from Conklin to Edmonton going like, what can we do? So right around the same time, my stepdad got cancer. Mm-hmm. He's manufacturing a valve in Edmonton. So he's actually, you know, brought all the manufacturing no need to go to China. He's manufacturing everything here in Edmonton. And I thought, wow, this could be my opportunity. This could be the, the widget that I need to then take that in a, and take that to a nearby reserve. So I pitched the idea to my dad and uh, he said, okay, let's start talking. So I reached out to a couple of communities and it didn't feel right. And I, I got connected with Alexander First Nation and um, the chief there, Chief George Arcan Jr., phenomenal human being. He's the ex-CEO of the Fort Mackay Group. He's an Alexander member that left the reserve and, and went and found awesome success. He worked in government for a lot of years. He's probably top three most influential chiefs in Canada. When the Pope came to Alberta, Chief George organized it and was with him the whole week. Mm-hmm. And so I met the chief, and I met some of the other people there, Ian and Chris, and I would go out to the reserve and just felt so welcomed. And they didn't even know who I was. They didn't know that I was, you know, part Mohawk Iroquois and I was a Michelle member and right next door. And they just, you felt so loved and, and, and just, it was such an awesome experience. But then you saw what the community needs, right? And I didn't, you know, I didn't think it was fair that 
you know, our First Nations people have been sent mostly by force to go live in these other parts of the province or the, or the country. And now for them to get success, they need to then leave the comfort of their community and their culture and go to the city to work. Well, they have no resume because they have no opportunity to work in their own reserve. So what are they going to do? They're going to fail. And when I was in the police, 75% of our homeless population is indigenous. Mm-hmm. Well, those people all came from somewhere. They didn't just right. reappear on the streets of Edmonton and mm-hmm. here you go. Right. They maybe tried to make a go of it and, and failed. And so the original idea was that True North was going to provide the infrastructure and the goods to Alexander to machine. And it would be, it would be called Alexander Manufacturing. And then I would buy them back from Alexander and I would sell them. I would distribute them. Mm-hmm. So everybody agreed. We had this awesome, beautiful ceremony planned for June 21st, 2021. Mm-hmm. And it was a Monday. That's Indigenous Day in Canada, June 21st. And um, so we had this great, I spent like 10 grand on tent and food and we had media and all this stuff lined up. And Friday at five o'clock, I get a phone call from Alexander First Nation. We need to talk before Monday. We cool. have to talk. Mm. When somebody says we need to talk, that yeah. usually means we're breaking up. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, usually. I, yeah. I, I've made that phone call several times. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And um, so, you know, it was a very tough, sleepless night Friday. Uh, Saturday, we met at the office, 9 o'clock. And they walked in and they said, we love the idea, obviously, about putting manufacturing on our reserve, but we want to buy the business. And I went, what do you mean? They go, well, we want it all. Like We've done our research with our clients. We've asked our clients about, you know, this space of supply, valve, infrastructure, pipe flange fitting, all this stuff. And we think it could be a very, very big thing. And I went, my first, my first thought was, no. <laughs> I'm like three or four years old. You don't sell a company that's doing this in three right. or four years because mm-hmm. you're not going to get what you want out of it. Right. And, um, but then I, but then my, my other, my other thought took over. Like, is this the way? Like, I, I, I've been preaching this way of involving our First Nations people, not being nagging communities, but actually being involved in infrastructure, being involved in the selling of it, uh, everything. And um, yeah, we sat there for like eight hours that day and talked about what we could see. And there was a couple tense moments. And I said, uh, you know what? I got to go for a walk. And you guys see the movie Moneyball? <laughs> yeah, I've seen the movie. Okay. One of my favorite <laughs> movies. And, you know, Brad Pitt turns to Jonah Hill and he goes, do we believe in this thing or not? Right. Well, then what are we talking about? <laughs> and that was literally what I asked myself. I said, do I believe in this thing or not? Yeah. Deep down in my heart, I do. And I'm like, well, then what am I talking about here? Go in there and agree to the deal. Right? Well, it'll work out. And yeah, I walked in and I said, okay, guys, let's do it. And I had to make a few phone calls after that to some of my key personnel, letting them know like, hey, by the way, I did this. And Sean was the one phone call that made me know that it was, it was the right move because he said, man, you've never, you've never done me wrong. I'll follow you to wherever you want to go. And I mm. said, wow, like, Okay, perfect. Because um, it could be scary, like, you know, being a long-term employee and a friend of mine, and all of a sudden I just call you on a Saturday saying, hey, by the way, I'm sold, the, owner. Co- sold yeah. the company. Yeah, that's uh, that can be, you know, fearful, right? Yeah. There's a lot of stress. But, you know, they, they believe in me. They believe in the message. And uh, so, yeah, Monday morning I announced it, threw everybody a curveball. And um, so, yeah, we, it was, you know, June 21st we announced it, and then the nation stepped aside and said, hey, by the way, we've hired some uh, high-priced lawyers. And they're going to come beat you up for a little while. And, <laughs> and it happened. But, uh, you know, I, it's the nature of the deal when you want to complete a deal like that. And so April 4th, we announced that we were now Alexander Valvin Supply, uh, North America's only First Nation community-owned company. 
That's we, cool. Yeah, it was it, honestly, uh, you know, you think about when you sell your company, you know, you you check your bank account or you go on a holiday. April 4th, we announced. April 5th, I was in Calgary for three days doing sales calls. And, you know, I, I after my experience at IFC, I said I would never have a partner again. But now I've got 2,400 members. Thank God they're all silent. <laughs> but um, it's it's the greatest honor I could probably ever have in my life to to work for a community and help change it because I've got a lot of ideas on what I want to do out there. You know, I, I believe that I also sit on the City of Edmonton Indigenous Procurement Advisory Board, you know, and, and, and props to the City of Edmonton for taking this opportunity because City of Edmonton needs to be a, a safe haven for some of our First Nations communities to, to send their people to that want to be entrepreneurs and want to do things. Mm-hmm. And we've got to really look at that because, I, I you know, I, I sit on this board and first meeting I said, I, I believe that through this committee we can end homelessness. Mm-hmm. Well, Ken, can we do that by the next election? <laughs> no, we can't. This is a longer-term plan here, people. But I really believe that if our First Nations people had the opportunity to learn and, and develop skills and get a resume in their own community yeah, and then come to the city of Edmonton, their, their chance for success is going to be far greater. Right, because, you know, in their own community, they have support. They have, you know, their, yeah. their families. They have all those things, and, you know. And, and I think everybody wants to have purpose, right? And 100%. just sitting around doing nothing and having no opportunity, what else do you do? You kind of, yeah. I think you self, the self-talk, I'm not worth anything, starts uh, to happen. Uh, right? Well, you look at our suicide rates on mm-hmm. reserve is like 10 times higher than it is in the city. Yeah. Because you're exactly right. When you have no purpose and you feel worthless. Yeah. What do you got? What, what do you have? Yeah. And then you drown it with, you know, you know all kinds of things, right? Trying well, to get out of that And And feeling. like, you guys ever been on WCB or EI in your life? Unemployment insurance? No. I haven't, no. Well, the government gives you the bare minimum to, sur- to survive. Yeah. Mm-hmm. To survive. And that's what our government, like uh, like our reserve at Alexander gets 150 grand a year for housing. That doesn't even build half what? a house. You can't even build a house for that. Yeah. So so you look at, you know, and, and, and what, what our, our, our nations are starting to understand and see is that you need, if, if you want to succeed and help your people, you've got to learn how to be a seat at the table, a capitalistic society. I believe a reserve needs to run a little bit socialist, but it needs to be funded through their capitalistic companies like Alexander Valve and Supply. Mm-hmm. Right. I want our company to do $100 million a year. I want to build a strip mall on Main Street, and I want five or six businesses. And I want those businesses, their goal is not to, to make millions, it's to not lose, and it's to learn. Mm-hmm. I want every one of those businesses to have you know, a manager, uh, sales, uh, whatever it is, so that our, our people can learn the skills and be armed with the resume to go to Edmonton, right? Wow. So That's so I know you got this effort, you're an army of one who, with this passion. Do you see this in other businesses in the region? Do you do you sense there's a, a kind of a feeling that this is a great way to, to help these communities to, to really get where they need to go? I That's what I'm really hoping that our venture proves mm-hmm. is that this can work. You know, when we did our grand opening um, on the 19th of August, we invited a couple hundred people out to the rink. So, so our, so we have, yeah, well, so we opened up our facility on the reserve. It's about 10,000 square feet. It's in the old hockey rink. Uh, Alexander had an old hockey rink. Uh, they got decommissioned. Mm-hmm. Um, it's beautiful. And yeah, we've got one machine in there spinning valve parts and we've created employment for five people. That's one machine, five jobs. And right now we have limited support from the industry. Mm-hmm. Well, that could turn into 50 jobs if we get the right support. I believe that if we do this right, people are going to go, wow, okay. Even to where we get the attention of the government. I think if the government were to really start to pay attention to this, they could find a way to provide 
money to communities in a different way. Mm-hmm. So like, you know, take for example, the next guy that goes, Hey, I want to put a, you know, a factory or a business on the nation, on the reserve, but I can't do it. Well, I have the intentions, but I'm going to get killed because of my trucking or my costs or whatever else. But I really want to bring home my, my outsourcing from China and I want to do this here. Mm-hmm. Okay. Government, how can we help subsidize costs to make sure that that company still maintains and, and is competitive? What will that solve all the other problems on our reserves? Mm-hmm. Right. You look at healthcare, right? Will it, will it, will it solve eventually homelessness if we can create as many jobs as we can we've got 634 reserves in canada how can we look at utilizing our people to then spin off and give them the opportunity hmm. right yeah. so that's what i'm really hoping um, for like i actually sent a email to uh aaron o'toole last year saying hey i'm doing this and he lost my vote when i got an email back saying we believe that our reconciliation plan is perfect and thank you for your well is it perfect who did you get it from have mm-hmm. you seen what's going on? <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you know what the real problem is? So it's, once again, being different and being able to look at problems differently, right? Yeah. Well, Ken, it's so interesting seeing your journey and where you got to and the difference, the, the road you're on to making a huge difference. I can't thank you enough for, for being on our show. If people want to connect with you, want to learn more, you know, where can they go? Where can we direct them to? Any social platforms that you want us to direct them to? Well, you know what? We're, um, we got a pretty good presence on LinkedIn. Our company, Alexander Valvin Supply, I'm on LinkedIn there. And uh, yeah, I'm not into like the whole Instagram, Facebook, <laughs> stuff like that. I'm pretty traditional when it comes to that stuff. But, you know, our website, alexandervalve.com. And yeah, awesome. You know, it's um, check us out. And if and if anybody's you know, has any ideas or thoughts or, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I sit down weekly with people who have, who want to help and just don't know where to get started. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing is you don't know how to get started. Yeah. Right. Interesting. So, Thank you so much, Ken. That was, uh, that was awesome. I really appreciate your time today. No problem. Thanks for having me, guys. That's a wrap. Episode over. You know what to do. Please leave a review. Subscribe would mean the absolute world to us.